You know, more people will go to church today uh, than will watch the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, what is the big deal? What is so significant about this morning and this day? What, what grabs us so much? Well, for the Christian, of course, it's that Jesus Christ has been raised on this day. I mean, Paul made very clear how important this day was when he said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if Christ is not raised, he says, our faith is useless and we are men to be pitied. I mean, think about it. I, I mean, the failure of Christianity, it rests on Easter. I mean, if Easter is a hoax, it's, it's all a sham. I mean, I don't know of any other religion in the world that has such a clause that would render it invalid if something isn't true. But, but, but Easter is this promise, it's this encouragement that forgiveness can be given, reconciliation with God can be had. And, and if Easter is true, if Jesus has been raised, then everything Jesus said is therefore true. That he is the Son of God. That he is the Savior of the world. That he does deserve our total allegiance, love, and faith. I mean, that the gospel that he came to bring is truly believable and ought to just radically reorient our lives. Today I want to just read from Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Just read four short verses, and I want to just look at the gospel from three aspects of the gospel. This is the message Jesus came to bring. The first thing Jesus said is repent and believe the gospel. And so I just want to look at the gospel and how Easter upholds the gospel. The gospel. How the resurrection kind of undergirds and validates and confirms all that Jesus preached in the gospel. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, we'll read the first four verses. It's written by Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So the first thing I want you to see is, is simply this, that this gospel that he came to preach was from God. In other words, the idea of salvation being offered to men and women is from God. The idea of reconciliation and forgiveness is bound up in the heart of God first. You see this in these first few verses. Paul, he hadn't met the church in Rome. He didn't plant the church, so it's kind of an extended introduction here. He's introducing himself. Notice the irony of him introducing himself as a servant. He's a servant. Who does that? Not, he's not, a, he's not a, a Pharisee. He's not a learned man. He's a servant. That's what he says. He's a servant that has been called by God, set apart for the, for, to be an apostle. That means to go and preach and to promote this gospel. And this gospel is of God. It's not a human invention that we kind of determined that we needed when we found ourselves in struggle, some Freudian idea that we have projected something upwards. But no, this gospel has come from God. This gospel is God's. God owns the gospel. God has given us the gospel. This gospel of good news, an announcement of grace to men and women 
who are fast bound in sin, that is from God. Or or this gospel, the good news, that you can be broken and your life can be a mess, and yet through Christ there is forgiveness and restoration, that's from God. This idea that if you're lonely, you're in despair, you're disillusioned with life, that God comes and he invites you to be in fellowship with himself, that's from God. It's all from God. It's his gospel. Amazing how we in our modern view can look at God and think of him as mean and stodgy and mean-spirited. I mean, don't you see the grace of God here? I mean, he's kind. Let's give credit where credit's due. All this is from God. We just sang it. It's all from God. Paul says in Corinthians that um, all this is from God who is reconciled to us through Jesus Christ. All this is from God. So let's just, can you agree with me to think God is kind and gracious to unilaterally move towards us with a gospel of grace. But the second thing I want you to see is this gospel that is from God is also has been promised beforehand. And Jack even alluded to it in his prayer. That, that What I'm saying by this is that we didn't find the gospel through our investigation or our persistent analysis, but it has been revealed to us through the scriptures. That the gospel isn't part of Jesus came with the gospel and he invented the gospel or Paul invented the gospel. The gospel was promised way long ago. You do realize that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God made all kinds of promises to save. He made promises to send a Messiah to deliver us from sin. Think about all the way back in Genesis 3. All the way back in Genesis 3, you have this promise. A man and woman before God sinned, they're moved out of his presence. They are now separated from God. They're on a road that's going to lead to physical and spiritual death. And yet God comes to them and he says, from the woman will come one to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent being that one that instigated the human rebellion. And then you find this promise to Adam and Eve given to Noah and and given to Abraham and given to Isaac and given to Jacob and given throughout all the prophets. This promise that God is moving towards men, who men and women who are in this dilemma, separation, alienation from God, we may not feel it. God stands and says, you are apart from me. And he moves towards us with this promise that one will come. One will come to deliver and to restore us back to the Father through himself. That's the promise that was given through the prophets. This God of the Old Testament who made these promises is the God of the New Testament who kept these promises. It's the same God. We don't have two books that we worship through. One book, one God, one Savior, one plan, one people, one salvation. That's what it is. This this salvation, this gospel from God was promised beforehand. God is trustworthy. He made promises and he kept them. He said one would come, one came. You can trust God. God is very trustworthy. But then the third thing about the gospel that I want you to see, it's come from God. It was promised beforehand, but it's been accomplished in Christ. This gospel from God promised beforehand has been accomplished in Christ. Notice what he says here. He says, the promise, he said, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, this gospel of God concerning his son. Jesus is the epicenter of the faith and this gospel and our salvation. Everything rests upon his shoulders, everything. It's the son. But how did he accomplish 
so great a salvation? Well, he tells us here. Paul is wanting us to be overwhelmed by this gospel of grace. And he says here, he says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, Jesus had always been God's son. The eternal existence of Jesus is clear in scriptures. But here, he becomes a man. He accomplishes this salvation by by being of the seed of David. Jesus Christ took on flesh. He became a man like us in every way. To experience life as we experience. I mean, he entered our limitations. He entered our humiliations. I mean, think about the, the Son of God forever takes on flesh and becomes like us. Think of the limitations that he embraced. The humiliation of being a human rather than being that divine son. He takes on flesh and lives with us, but not just to identify with us. Not just to identify with us, but also to be a substitute for us. He came to live a perfect life before the Father that the Father would be satisfied in his life and that he would give to us his glory and his perfection. And we would give to him our sin. That's why he took on flesh. He took on flesh to be a man so that he could bear our sin, our shame, and our guilt. Just imagine God taking this colossal lot of our sin and shame and putting it upon the Son, and then God would bear and bring his wrath on the Son in satisfaction of justice. Jesus was the descendant of David. This is a dark side of the story that Jesus bore all this for us, for our sakes. He was our substitute. That's why he came in the flesh. That's the dark side. The bright side of the story is the next verse. He says, And he was also declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now, He was declared, or better, the word would be appointed to be the Son of God, empowered. But you you might be thinking, well, Tom, you just said he was the Son of God eternally. How can he be now appointed to be Son of God? Well, remember, Jesus, as the Son of God, took on flesh, entered our humiliation, suffered, and then died. And then Jesus raised him from the dead. That's what it says here. He's declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what God did led him into humiliation, into weakness, and into death as a son of God. But then he raised him to life, and now he's the son of God in power. That's the operative phrase. He is now in power, far above rule, authority, and dominion. He has the same power and glory that he had before he took on flesh. So God led him into becoming a man like us, bearing our sin, our shame, our guilt, establishing us in a righteousness that is not our own, but his. And then God raises him in power and now seats him at the right hand of God. We see this beautifully taught in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes these words to the church of Philippi. He says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Easter. This is the gospel. This is the glory of it all. That, that God had a gospel before the foundations of the world and, and he brought it forth through promises that were littered throughout the Old Testament. And then he brings forth the Son in completion of those promises and accomplishes the work of salvation by, by leading him to take on flesh, to bear our sin and shame and guilt. And then he would exalt him in salvation, leading a host of followers with him. That's the gospel story. Without the resurrection, it all fails at Calvary. It just stops. But being raised changes everything. So, so for the Christian here, let me just give you some implications to draw from this. Let me just try to stair-step some ideas that I want you to consider in light of this story. For the Christian here, I have a word for the non-Christian as well, but for the Christian to begin with, number one, this means that you're accepted by God. That, that, that this Jesus, by his resurrection, by virtue of his resurrection, he is unique. He's absolutely able to forgive. Why? Because he's the one that has taken upon himself our sins. He's the one who died. He's the one who raised. He can now grant forgiveness to us. That God has accepted his sacrifice. That God has looked upon the Son and he sees mercy being distributed in the gospel, justice being served in the cross. You know, in, in Romans chapter 4, 25, Paul writes these. Just a few chapters later, he says, he says that for he was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. We are justified. We know that we're accepted by God through faith because he's been raised. So for the Christian here, for, for you, you have a faith, but you're still trying to do things that you think are going to put you in good stead with the Father. You're still trying to work out this moral life plus faith so that God might accept you. In a way, it's a denial of the gospel. In a way, it's denying all that he's done. He's done it all. And, and for the Christian here that looks back at their life and they're constantly overwhelmed by their sin and the darkness of their actions, be cautious, Christian. In a way, you're kind of denying what he's done for you. That we as Christians ought to live in the freedom of being accepted by God in Christ. This, of course, doesn't lead to just careless living. If you have any understanding of the value of the cross, you want to live holy lives, but it's a response of gratitude. It's not a means of securing God's favor for you. Kind of stuck in this world of he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, depending upon how your week went. So we're accepted by God. For the Christian, we also know that God is trustworthy. We can trust his word. Folks, he's made promises, and he has completed them. God has spoken, and it came to be. The Christian here, because of the resurrection, is resting in the word, trusting the word. We're mining the scriptures. We're people of the book. We read it and believe it. I was meditating this morning in Luke 24. I love Luke 24. You know, when, when Jesus is raised, the women go to the tomb, and of course, Jesus isn't there. And, and the two angels say they're looking for Jesus to anoint his body. And so the angels say, and, and I, don't, I don't imagine it was sarcastic, but you can imagine that how it would have come across to these women. He says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you doing it? Had he not told you 
that he would rise on the third day? He had told them. And they had heard him, but they didn't believe him. He made a promise. They didn't believe him. They weren't waiting for him. Can you imagine? Just one faithful one hanging around the tomb. It's going to be three days. In about six hours, I'm going to see him. That's what faith looks like. You're believing what he says. And so the resurrection confirms to us that he's trustworthy to his word. We can believe what he says. And it can, in, it can engender joy in our souls over all the promises he makes towards us. Thirdly, this resurrection confirms that life matters. Life matters. Listen, to the person who doesn't believe in the resurrection, you're fighting for meaning in life. Death removes ultimate meaning. If you do not believe in a resurrection, then life has no ultimate meaning because it all ends in the box. It all ends. You can fight for meaning, but it will have no meaning for you. But for the Christian, because Jesus has been raised, all life has meaning, actions, motivations. All that we do has value and meaning because there's something beyond the grave. That's why Jesus says even a cup of cold water won't be forgotten. Even a cup of cold water. Life matters for us. Uh, but, but then fourth, this, this, we can change. You, you know, so many times we get stuck in this, in this thought that I'll never be different. But the resurrection assures us that we're going to be changing. Why? Well, because when Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and then he gives the Spirit. Jesus pours the Spirit out to us, so now the power of Christ dwells within us through his Spirit, enabling us, changing our desires, leading us to want to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We can change. We can now confess our sins to those whom we sin against. We can repent. We can ask for forgiveness. We can turn away from sin. We can begin to incrementally change because he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's why he said, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater still because I go to the Father. Ask me whatever you wish and I will give it so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. He's going to change us through the Spirit. But, but, but here's another reason for the Christian to rejoice over this day. There is no longer for the Christian the fear of death. Age, cancer, sickness, nuclear proliferation, it, it doesn't matter. Those things matter but they don't cause us to fear dying. You, you, do you realize that the whole study of philosophy, so we as a staff are reading that book, A History of Thought by Luke Ferry. We've encouraged many of you to read it. And this is a book about studying philosophy. And in this book, he explains to us that the, that the genesis of philosophy, what started philosophy, was trying to deal with the very fear of death that I'm speaking about. In other words, the philosophers were trying to, everybody's dying, how do we live now in light of this death? Religion has an answer. Philosophy offers. You need to live in the present. You want to be blind to the future, you can't control that. You want to be blind to the past, you can't change that. You have to live now, in the here and the now. That's their answer. Guess what? I can close my eyes and stand on the tracks. I, I can close them, but the train's still coming. I mean, death still hits. The Christian answer to the fear of death is Jesus, who has vanquished death. He's vanquished it. He's crushed it. Here's what he says in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ holds the keys. In other words, he owns it. He's crushed it. He's defeated it. 
So we don't have to fear death anymore. Another implication for the Christian, that you can be worshiping in all Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is not simply a friend to us. He is a friend. He's a savior. He's a brother. But he's also glorious and worthy of your absolute adoration, your absolute submission. I think about the story of John the Apostle, lived with Jesus for three years, enjoyed Jesus, rested on his chest at the Last Supper. They were very close, very intimate with one another. And yet when Jesus saw John on the island of Patmos, after Jesus had been raised, when John saw him, he said this, I fell at his feet as though dead. His face was shining as the sun in its full strength. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were burnished bronze. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Out of his tongue, out of his mouth, came a double-edged sword. This is the glory of Christ that we now worship. So, So he is worthy of your absolute adoration and your absolute submission. Last implication for the Christian is that we are called to go forth to the world. I didn't read verse 5, but in verse 5 he says this, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. For the Christian, because of the resurrection, it, it differentiates us from every other religion. So we don't believe that Islam is for the Muslims and, and Judaism is for the Jews and, and Christianity is for the Western culture. He is for the nations that the grace that has come through Christ because of the resurrection is going to bring about an obedience of faith. People are going to turn from all the nations to Christ. That's why we go to all the nations. The resurrection makes Christ absolutely unique that he's going to be worshipped by every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and people group. All coming before Christ. Every knee bowing before him. It's profound what we celebrate this day. Absolutely profound. Now, now, for the person here who isn't a Christian, thank you for coming. You may be with your family, uh, but thank you for coming. You know, you may struggle with believing in this resurrection. You haven't seen one. You haven't seen the evidence. You just don't know. You're uncertain. Well, let me remind you just of a couple things. Number one, uh, it is in the nature of a miracle to not be strewn about with evidence. If miracles happen all the time, guess what they are? They're not miracles anymore. The nature of a miracle is that it is unique. It's not a repeatable event that can be tested. But secondly, I I would just ask you to consider reading through the Gospels over the next few days. Just reading through the Gospels, looking at the witnesses and how they speak about Christ, looking at the words that he spoke as recorded by these witnesses. You know, every day we have courtrooms that are filled with people in jury boxes making decisions on cases they've never seen. What do they do? They listen to witnesses. What do they do? They look at the evidence. That's all they do. And they render truth or non-truth based upon what they hear. The credibility of the witnesses, the number of the witnesses. And and then read these Gospels. You know, over 500 saw Christ at one time. Just read through the Gospels. They are the eyewitnesses of Christ. It's really important that you would consider this because, as I said at the beginning, if Christ has not been raised, I am a fool. And our faith is useless. But if he has been raised, then Christianity alone is true. And we are men and women to be envied. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to have 
a few minutes of testimonies on how God has changed lives. And when you see these testimonies, some may strike you as significant, some may strike you as less significant. But that's the glory of God. He's moving in people incrementally and, and differently, one from the other, constantly changing us. Even the small things, you know, it says in the book of Zephaniah, don't despise the day of small things. God may be moving in your life in a very small way, but it's still evidence of his work. So let me just pray for us in this word, and then we'll play these testimonies. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in your son. We rejoice over his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement at your right hand. Father, would you grant to us grace and mercy to now live in light of this profound truth. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.